Religion and the law have long been uncertain bedfellows when it comes to justice and when it comes to salvation. When Moses brings the Ten Commandments to the Hebrews, religion is the law. The Ten Commandments combine both religious instruction, thou shalt have no other gods before me, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and secular law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. But religion can't constrain those who don't believe in the religion, and there comes a time when personal acts of revenge, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, must be phased out in favor of societal concepts of justice, even if those revenges are motivated by religion. So, in the Oresteia by Aeschylus, Agamemnon returns home from the Trojan War and is murdered by his wife, Clytemnestra. She has taken a lover in the time that he's gone, but she is also avenging the murder of Iphigenia, her and Agamemnon's daughter, whom Agamemnon has sacrificed to get favoring winds to travel to Troy. It is up to Orestes, Clytemnestra and Agamemnon's son, to avenge his father's murder by murdering the murderers. He is urged on to this by the god Apollo. So religion is endorsing revenge. The problem is one of the murderers is his mother, and when he kills her to revenge his father, he is pursued by the Furies for committing matricide. So it's a dilemma. One side of the religion urges him on to gain revenge by murdering his mother. The other side punishes him for murdering his mother. So what's the solution? The solution in the Oresteia is that Orestes appeals to Athena, the goddess of justice, and she rules that there must be a trial. The trial is held with a jury of 12 Athenian citizens, with Athena herself as the judge. And at the end of the trial, the jury is deadlocked. So Athena herself breaks the tie, deciding that Orestes should not be killed and determining that the cycle of revenge must end. From this point on, all such crimes are settled in court. So we see that even with the ancient Greeks, society steps in to counter personal justice, even personal justice endorsed by a god. But what happens to people with no gods to guide them? Is their conscience without religion? In Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov, through his feelings of superiority and his embracing of nihilism and utilitarianism, ends up killing two people. Though he can probably easily get away with it, he is tormented by guilt, which eventually leads to his confession. The Wikipedia article on the novel notes, Raskolnikov's inner conflict in the opening section of the novel results in a utilitarian, altruistic justification for the proposed crime. Why not kill a wretched and useless old moneylender to alleviate the human misery? Dostoevsky wants to show that this utilitarian style of reasoning had become widespread and commonplace. It was by no means the solitary invention of Raskolnikov's tormented and disordered mind. Such radical and utilitarian ideas 
act to reinforce the innate egoism of Raskolnikov's character and help justify his contempt for humanity's lower qualities and ideals. He even becomes fascinated with the majestic image of a Napoleonic personality who, in the interests of a higher social good, believes that he possesses a moral right to kill. Indeed, his Napoleon-like plan impels him toward a well-calculated murder, the ultimate conclusion of his self-deception with utilitarianism. Dostoevsky believes that the moral freedom propounded by Raskolnikov is a dreadful freedom that is contained by no values because it is before values. In seeking to affirm this freedom in himself, Raskolnikov is in perpetual revolt against society, himself, and God. He thinks that he is self-sufficient and self-contained, but at the end, his boundless self-confidence must disappear in the face of what is greater than himself, and his self-fabricated justification must humble itself before the higher justice of God. Dostoevsky calls for the regeneration and renewal of sick Russian society through the rediscovery of its national identity, its religion, and its roots. But if that's the case, does that mean that Raskolnikov's guilt comes from God, even though he doesn't believe in God? Do we need religion to have guilt? Do we need religion to have forgiveness? In Cecil B. DeMille's 1923 silent version of the Ten Commandments, Moses comes on the scene looking very much like David Crosby in his later years. We don't get any of Moses' youth as we do in DeMille's 1950s remake. The first time we see Moses, we're already at the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And by the time we leave him, he's destroying the tablets of the Ten Commandments because of his disgust at the worship of a golden calf. That only takes up an hour of the two and a half hours of the movie. The rest of the film segues to a contemporary story in which Danny, raised by a religious mother, rejects her religion and the Ten Commandments and goes on to what appears to be great success. But without any moral foundation, his success is based on cheating and lies, ultimately leading to the death of his mother, and finally, to him breaking all of the commandments, which leads to his great regret and to his own destruction. So again, we have the notion that without God, there's no restraint, leading to an inherent amorality. And yet there is still an inner retribution that leads Raskolnikov to confess, that leaves Danny to great regret, if not Raskolnikovian guilt. Danny's destruction comes not from religion, but from his flight from secular authorities who are seeking him for murder. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and in this episode, Ray Clemens seeks to commit an act of personal revenge and comes face-to-face -face with his conscience. Is it a confrontation he would have had anyway, or is it a confrontation assisted by God? Here's Hitch. Good evening, and thank you for allowing me to come into your living rooms. Well, I'm not easily shocked, but I did expect people to dress a bit more formally before sitting in front of their sets, now that two-way television is here. <coughs> Apparently not everyone was aware of the incessant march of progress. 
The next improvement should be more to your liking. I understand that scientists will soon make it possible for any object thrown at the television screen to actually hit the performer. All of which reminds me of a story. So here's Place of Shadows. First broadcast on February 26th, 1956. Starring Everett Sloan. Story and teleplay by Robert C. Dennis. And directed by Robert Stevens. This is Robert C. Dennis's sixth script for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and he did indeed write the story for this as well, even though he's only credited for the teleplay. We'll get to the story a little bit later on. But just a reminder here that Robert's previous five episodes were Don't Come Back Alive, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Older Sister, and The Derelicts. He has 25 more his next being Help Wanted, episode number 27. Robert Stevens has 36 more Alfred Hitchcock Presents and five Alfred Hitchcock Hours. This is his eighth episode, After Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, and Shopping for Death. His next is episode 24, the Perfect Murder. And I wanted to play this clip, which I don't think I've played before, from Norman Lloyd in the Alfred Hitchcock Presents A Look Back feature on the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set. Robert Stevens actually directed more episodes than any of the directors. We still had to make it look like a Hitchcock show, but Stevens brought in a certain kind of nervousness to it, which was awfully good. I hadn't thought of Robert Stevens' work as having a kind of nervousness. But now that we've heard that, let's keep it in mind and see if we can see what Norman Lloyd is talking about. All right, then. For the second episode in a row, we begin with a train. It stops at a little out-of-the-way station on a miserable winter night in the midst of a snowstorm although there doesn't seem to be much in the way of a storm in our exterior shot of the train arriving. We cut to the inside of the station, where the station agent is a very familiar face. He's Harry Tyler, whom we've seen twice before. The first time as Isaiah Dobbs, way back in episode number two, Premonition, and then most recently as the house manager in episode 20, and so died Rio Bashinska. Harry is in eight more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, his next being Portrait of Jocelyn, episode 28, in which he plays a real estate agent. And interestingly enough, he'll return in The Dangerous People, episode 39 of season two, in another train station as another station agent. Here, he puts on his coat as the train arrives and a young man enters the building. Apparently, this young man was on the train, though there really hasn't been time for him to get off. In fact, we still see the shadow of the train passing by only seconds before he steps in, one of the first of many shadows that we'll see in this episode. And when he steps in, he has snow all over the shoulders of his coat, as if he's been standing outside for quite some time. 
This all seems like it might be a hint for something later, but no, it isn't. The passing shadow of the train is supposed to tell us that he was on the train, and the snow on his shoulders is supposed to tell us that it's snowing a lot outside, as is all of the snowflakes that come flying in the door as he walks in. I imagine prop people back there throwing buckets of detergent flakes through the door as the young man steps in. The station agent is an affable sort, and he starts right in on a conversation. She sure is a nasty night out. Yeah. Mighty close to being below zero, and it's dropping every minute. You won't have long to wait, though. They called a few minutes ago. Who? Them. Anybody who gets off here, there's only one place they're gone. Up there. They're sending a car for you. We're immediately faced with a mystery. Who is sending a car for him? Them. We don't know what that means, but it's also clear that the young man doesn't know what that means either. The young man steps over to a pot-bellied stove to warm up, but there is no fire in the pot-bellied stove. Only taking 20 minutes. Hardly worth building a fire. Well, I'm going home and thaw out. There won't be anything coming through till the 921. The streamliner never stops here. There's actually two important pieces of information there. There's no fire in the stove, and the streamliner never stops here. Then it's back to more mystery. Oh, uh, you going up there for good? D to stay, I mean. No. No, I, I didn't think so. You don't look like one of them. One of who? What is going on here? I really like the way this is all set up. None of it seems to make any sense, but when we find out who he's talking about, it makes perfect sense. Huh? Sure is a nasty one. And that's it for Harry in this episode. Well done, Harry. Good to see you again. We'll check you out in Portrait of Jocelyn, episode 28. We don't have a name yet for our young man, but we know who plays him. Mark Damon. No relation to Matt Damon, although he is related to composer Danny Elfman. They're cousins. Mark Damon was born in 1933, making him 86 years old at the time of this recording. And this is very early in his career. In fact, this is only his sixth credit on IMDb. Mark Damon was born Alan Harris, though the family name was originally Herskovitz. As a senior in high school in Los Angeles, he was scouted as an actor by Groucho Marx, but he decided to attend dental school at UCLA instead. He didn't stay in dental school. He switched to the Anderson School of Management, graduating with an MBA and a BA in English. While he was doing that, he began taking theater classes and decided that maybe he wanted a career as an actor after all. He's probably best known as an actor playing opposite Vincent Price in the 1960 film House of Usher, written by Richard Matheson. She has found peace now, has she? Why do you say that? Because I do not believe that for the Ushers there is peace hereafter. Is there no end to your horrors? None whatever, for they are not mine alone. Mere passage from the flesh cannot undo centuries of evil. There can be no peace without penalty. That you wanted her to die? Want it? Yes! I did not wish her death. I only knew it was inevitable as my death is inevitable. 
Mark won a Golden Globe Award as a star of tomorrow for his performance in that film. In the 1960s, he moved to Italy to appear in a number of films, including Black Sabbath, 100 Horsemen, Ringo and His Golden Pistol, and he was the lead in Johnny Yuma. All right. Tell them to drop their guns. Got that? And give me mine. Huh? Go on. Tell him. While in Italy, he became aware of the fact that there was a huge market for American films, and he quit acting to become a producer of independent, internationally distributed films. In 1977, he returned to the United States, and he founded Producers Sales Organization, the first company to compete with the major studios selling American films to international distributors. His success established his reputation as the inventor of the foreign sales business and the brains behind independent film production. Along the way, Mark has produced or executive produced over 70 films, including the 2003 film Monster, for which Charlize Theron won the Academy Award for Best Actress, and which is the monster in the title of the book about him, From Cowboy to Mogul to Monster, the never-ending story of film pioneer Mark Damon, written by Linda Schreier and Mark Damon. And by the way, if you're interested, according to the May 10th, 2019 Los Angeles Times, actor-producer Mark Damon has relisted his home in the Beverly Hills Post Office area for sale at $8.995 million. It may not be too late to grab that. This is Mark's only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Okay, so back to our question. One of who? Who's up on the hill? Who's sending the car? After the station agent leaves, the scene dissolves to a close-up of a gun in someone's hand. We only find out it's the young man's hand when a voice off-screen says, Mr. Unser? That voice seems to startle the camera into showing the man who's holding the gun, and it startles the young man as well. In fact, the young man seems jittery throughout and those very jitters seem contagious, spreading to the camera. So I think we can already see what Norman Lloyd is talking about when he refers to the nervousness in Robert Stevens' direction. The camera cuts to a man in a cloak and hood, standing by the door. He has little pellets of snow on him, even though he apparently has only been out in the snow during the short time it took him to get from his car into the station. I'm from the monastery on the hill. Aha! A monastery. That explains everything, particularly the station agent's comment of, You don't look like one of them. With his pomaded hair, the man we now hear is named Mr. Unser, sure doesn't look like one of them. I'm sorry I wasn't here to meet the train. The roads are so bad, you know. Oh, dear me. Station agent should have made a fire for you. Well, that's all right. I wasn't waiting long. I'm Brother Jared, Mr. Unser. I have a machine outside. Search the tits. Come along, won't you? There's several bits of information there. The roads are really bad, so we know there's a big storm going on out there. A reminder that the stove does not have a fire in it. And we learn the monk's name, Brother Jared. He shakes hands with Mr. Unser, and we see their shadows up against the wall. Then he tells him that he has a machine outside, which is a strange way of putting it. He says it again a little bit later. 
His machine went over a 20-foot embankment. Which makes it seem as if it's significant. Is this supposed to make him sound more foreign? He does have an Irish accent. Or more behind the times by living in a monastery? It beats me. I can't find the reason for it. Sean McClory plays Brother Jared, and he was indeed Irish, born in Dublin and performing in Dublin's Abbey Theatre as a young man. He rose through the ranks, performing in Yeats plays and Shaw plays, and soon ended up playing leads in comedies. When the comedies began to fade from the theatre after World War II, he turned an eye toward film. He came to the United States in 1947, where his first two Hollywood roles were as two different Irish cops in two different Dick Tracy movies. Dick Tracy's Dilemma and Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome. What's the trouble, Carney? Oh, just another junk. This is the fifth time I've called the wagon tonight. I'm on my way down to headquarters to pick up Dick Tracy. Can I take him along for you? Don't that I'd appreciate, Pat. Well, where is he? He's lying in the doorway of that joint back there. He plays other Irish cops and Irish characters in various Western TV shows along the way. But he also appears in The Glass Menagerie, Lorna Doone, David and Bathsheba, The Quiet Man, and Them. He's in the One Step Beyond episode, The Inheritance, the thriller episodes, The Hollow Watcher and The Specialists, the Perry Mason episodes, The Case of the Malicious Mariner, the case of the scandalous sculptor, and the case of the unsuitable uncle. Off and on, we, we knocked around together for close to 17 years. Every port in the Pacific. Oh, we had good times with Mr. Mason. We had good times. Well, you heard himself. The best shipmate he ever had. So why would I kill my best chum, Mr. Mason? According to the police, that $18,000 check they took away from him. He's in the Outer Limits episode, The Duplicate Man along with Constantine Shane from Safe Conduct, our last episode. I've got to make sure that I killed the Megasoid. I wounded it, I know. Good, you're gone. Now, what is it? The Megasoid. What are you talking about? Are you drunk? But the Megasoid Forget is... it, will you? Now, let's not have any more talk about Megasoids. There aren't any left, Mr. James, remember? He's in the Honey West episode, Flame and the Pussycat... You must be the chief investigator, Mr. Booth. Thank you. You know, on your lips, that title sounds like General of the Army. Now then, darling, tell me, uh, what can I do for you? What's the purpose of your visitor? The Lost in Space episode, The Astral Traveler. Great horn toads, have you no respect for a ghostie? Why don't you stop fooling around and take me to your leader? Me what? You aliens are all alike. Never come out and say what's on your mind. Never save time and trouble. You're always trying to scare somebody. Tell me, are you mortal? Well, of course. What are you? I told you what I was. I'm a ghosty. The Columbo episode, The Conspirators. I need help, Captain. <laughs> so do I, Mr. Dell. The merchandise has been held up. I need more time. Perhaps you could delay your departure. I'm sorry to hear about your merchandise. For two or three days? Not even for two or three hours, Mr. Devlin. I have a schedule to keep. And in John Houston's last film, The Dead. Ladies and gentlemen, I had intended doing a comic recitation for you this evening, but 
I came across something recently that I would very much like to pass on to you. It is called Broken Vows. It is late last night the dog was speaking of you. The snipe was speaking of you in her deep marsh. It is you are the lonely bird throughout the woods, and that you may be without a mate until you find me. It's nearly Sean's last film as well. He's in one other thing in his career, a TV movie called Body Bags. And it is a little bit gruesome, and not the gruesome who meets Dick Tracy, to think that his last two appearances are in The Dead and Body Bags. He's in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Appointment at Eleven, episode three of season five. And he has another very tenuous connection to Alfred Hitchcock. He is in Man in the Attic, the fourth film to be based on The Lodger. You clatter like a horse. You'll not seal up on any Jack the Ripper thundering through the streets like that. 3,000 men called out, all wearing rubber strips on their boots, except the Yorkshireman. And one Yorkshireman's worth a lot of you, never mind me, boots. And it's interesting to note, as Jack Seabrook points out, that Sean McClory gets higher billing in this episode than Mark Damon. Sean McClory died in 2003 at the age of 79. So now we find ourselves looking into the car the machine, driven by Brother Jared. It's one of those shots where we look into the windshield from the front, only it's so dark out we don't need any rear screen projection. We see the lit headlights of the car. There appears to only be a windshield wiper for the driver's side, and the prop people are throwing those detergent flakes like crazy. The time has come for a little bit of exposition. I imagine you'd like to hear about Mr. Rocco. Yes, what's he doing in a monastery? The people that found him brought him to us. You see, there's no hospital for miles, and there was nothing else he could do. Well, what happened to him? His machine went over a 20-foot embankment. He's rather seriously hurt. He's back. But Brother Charles will tell you all about that. He's our doctor. Yes, we almost needed a doctor ourselves then. And so we crossfade to the monastery, Mr. Unser walking along with Brother Jared, shadows all over the walls which is hardly surprising since the whole place is lit only by candles on the walls. And Brother Jared takes Mr. Unser to see Father Vincente. Father, this is Mr. Unser. Thank you, Brother Gerard. If there is anything else I can do, Father, I'd be delighted to stay in... You worry too much about me. Mr. Unser, your coat is wet. Take it off. Father Vincente seems to think that Brother Jared is Brother Gerard. He's Brother Gerald in the short story. But I'm going to stick with Jared, because that's what he's calling himself. Anyway, Father Vincente is played by Everett Sloan, who is our lead actor here. We saw him last time in Episode 8, Our Cook's a Treasure, as Ralph Montgomery, another nervous character directed by Robert Stevens. And we learned all about him then. He is in one more episode, The Waxwork, Episode 27 of Season 4. Can I see Rocco now? It's very late. I know, but I've come a long way. 
So how late can it be? Remember what the station agent said. Only take them 20 minutes. Hardly worth building a fire. Well, I'm going home and four out. There won't be anything coming through till the 921. The streamliner never stops here. So it only takes them 20 minutes to drive down from the monastery. The weather is bad, but let's say it takes a half an hour going back. And the station agent has gone home for a while because the streamliner never stops. And he only has to worry about the 921, which is the train that we'll learn later our young man plans to take on the way back. So no, it can't be very late at all. Why did you come, Mr. Unzi? To find Rocco. You told me to come in the letter. I got it right here. But uh, this is only the envelope. Well, it's got the return address on it, Father. That's all I brought. Doesn't the return address inform him that it's a monastery? I want to see Rocco, Father. I'm sorry. I cannot permit that. Why not? We give sanctuary here to anyone who asks it. Mr. Rocco was brought to us in need of help. I don't get it. Why did you bring me all the way up here if you weren't to let me see Rocco? Because, my son, you are not. Mr. Unser. What makes you think that? Mr. Rocco gave us a complete description of his friend. A tall man, rather slim, middle-aged. That doesn't describe you, does it? Okay, I'm not Unser. He couldn't come and I came in his place. What difference does it make? Perhaps a great deal. If you are Ray Clements. Ah, of course, he's Ray Clements. Whatever that means. Both of these characters know something that we don't. But we're going to find out right now. He swindled me out of a lot of money. Yes, he told me that. Did he tell you it wasn't my money to start with? Did he tell you it was money from the office where I worked? You stole the money, my son? No, I only borrowed it. I was going to pay it back. But Rocco's the thief, father. And you're trying to protect him. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But if you take money from your business... Even if you intend to pay it back, you're the thief. Even if someone steals from you afterwards. Are you a fugitive, Mr. Clements? Is that why you came here? No, I kept out of jail. I borrowed enough money to pay it all back. But I'll be in debt for years. I lost my job, my friends, my girl, even my father. He turned his back on you? No. He died last week. They called it a heart attack. It was all right. His heart was broken. Dave Rocco killed him, Father. Just as sure as I'm going to kill him now. There's a nice directing touch here in that scene. For a lot of it, we see Ray head on. But for the moment that he mentions that his father has died, we see the back of his head. And then as he talks about how he lost his father... He turns away from this father, and we see him in profile, looking very intent and very intense. Okay, so it's one thing to lose your job and your girl. It's another thing to lose your father dying of a broken heart. Now, again, it's fair to consider how much responsibility Ray bears in all this. But Ray doesn't see it that way. As far as he's concerned, Rocco killed his father and he has become the equivalent of Orestes and Aeschylus' Oresteia. He wants revenge. And Mr. Unser 
Did you? No, no, I didn't kill him. I knocked him out so I could get that envelope. See, I'd been watching them ever since Rocco disappeared. They were partners. I knew they'd meet up sooner or later. Will you tell me how much money you lost? Yeah, I'll tell you. $13,000. Yes. Here is your money, Mr. Clements. All of it. Oh, it's quite simple. Since Mr. Rocco has been with us, he's had a change of heart. I don't believe him. Maybe you do, Father, but I know Dave Rocco. But Mr. Rocco asked us to return your money. Take it, my son. So why is Dave Rocco driving around with $13,000 in cash in an envelope? It's not like he just got this money. We've heard from Ray that Ray paid the money back. All these awful things have happened to him in the meantime. It was a little while ago that he got this money. But perhaps a more important question is, what brings about Rocco's change of heart? What brings his conscience to the fore? Is it because he's been in an accident and he knows he's in a life-threatening situation? Or is it because he's in a monastery? Whatever the reason for the gesture, it doesn't soften Ray's heart. And he has a very good point. What good is it? Will it bring my father back? Nevertheless, Ray takes the money. We get a nice close-up of his hand sticking the envelope in his inside coat pocket right next to the gun. So now we have a situation. Ray has his money back, but he isn't ready to back off getting revenge on Rocco. Father Vincente wants to change that feeling of revenge into forgiveness, and he knows only one way to do it, through religion. Have you been to church lately? No. But you did attend once. Yes, I was an altar boy. Ah, then you were raised in the faith, and you're still quite young. You could not have forgotten. It won't work, Father. But if that won't work, how about this? Now I must go to Vespers. Would you care to attend, Mr. Clements? Ray initially resists, but finally agrees to attend in the visitor's gallery. The gallery is a second-floor balcony, looking down on all the monks, indistinguishable in their hoods and robes. There's a large cross with a representation of the crucified Christ on an altar. It casts a shadow on the wall. Ray looks down. We see the room from his point of view. He sees the crucifix, and he kneels and reflexively starts to cross himself. But then he realizes what he's doing, and he stops. Still, the music and the service affect him bringing tears to his eyes as he clasps his hands in front of him, seems to look heavenward before bowing his head, and he appears to pray. Father Vincente, the only monk we get a close-up of, looks up at him now and then to see how things are affecting him. And they are certainly affecting him. But then Ray shakes it off and bolts out of the gallery. If religion is the thing that is going to sway him, it's going to take more than chants and monks and a large crucifix with its shadow on the wall. Father Vincente realizes this too and knows that he's going to have to take a more active hand. Before he does, 
let's take a look at IMDb for a moment. It lists Harv Presnell as one of the actors in this episode, playing, according to IMDb, Mitch. The only problem with this is there is no Mitch in this episode. So is Harv Presnell in the episode. Well, according to Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an illustrated guide to the 10-year television career of the Master of Suspense by John McCarty and Brian Kelleher, Harv Presnell makes a brief appearance as a singer in this episode. There's only one singer here, and that is the leader of the chants, whom we never really even see. But just in case it's Harv Presnell, let's talk about him for a little bit. He was born George Harvey Presnell, and he began his career in the mid-1950s, right around the time of this episode, as a classical baritone singing with orchestras and opera companies. In 1960, his emphasis shifted from classical music to musical theater when Meredith Wilson cast him in The Unsinkable Molly Brown as Leadville Johnny. He reprised the role in the film version and won a Golden Globe Award for Best New Star of the Year. His other standout role in the 60s was as Rotten Luck Willie in Paint Your Wagon. His singing of They Call the Wind Mariah was considered the high point of what was otherwise considered a rather mediocre film. Away out here they got a name for rain and wind and fire. The rain is test, the fire's Joe, and they call the wind Mariah. That could be the same voice that does the chants in this episode. In any event, Harv's film career slacked off by the early 1970s. And he went back to Broadway. But in the 90s, he saw a resurgence in his film and television career, appearing in regular roles in Dawson's Creek and Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and guesting on such series as ER, Monk, Frasier, the 1990s Outer Limits, and Star Trek Voyager as one of the cues. Ah, Captain Janeway, I presume. You're dismissed. I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, madam, but uh, please sit down. <clears throat> I understand you walked into our camp alone and unarmed? That's right. Continuum is a dangerous place for all of us right now, not to mention a solitary human female. And he's in the films Saving Private Ryan, Evan Almighty, Fargo. How you doing, Wade? Yeah, pretty good. What you watching there? Go first. And Jeff Daniels' Escanaba into Moonlight. Pop, what's wrong? It's all sap. Right out of the tree, sap. The whole batch? All that's missing is the pancakes and the butter. Mr. Sotis, does that mean? Uh, I'm afraid so, Jimmer. We're in deer camp without whiskey. Now, that may seem like an awful lot of detail and an awful lot of clips for someone who might not even be in the episode, but Harv Presnell doesn't appear in any other episodes, so let's give him his due while we can. Harv Presnell died in 2009 at the age of 75. Upon leaving the visitor's gallery, Ray looks shaken and unsure until he sees Brother Charles exiting a room carrying a tray with empty glasses and what looks like little bottles of medicine on it. He enters another room, which Ray assumes must be Rocco's room, 
and then leaves without the tray. Now, we could ask why Brother Charles is not attending Vespers. Because he's taking care of Rocco? Bringing him a tray? Well, as we'll find out at the end of the episode, that can't be the case. But for now, let's look at Everett Glass, who plays Brother Charles. He began as a stage actor. In fact, in 1917, he was one of the original members of the permanent company of the Greenwich Village Theater. And he went on to have a long career as a director and a playwright. He came to Hollywood in the 1950s and appeared in the films Friendly Persuasion, Elmer Gantry, The Thing from Another World. Be careful, Doctor. Those barbs, whatever they are, are very sharp. An Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Ed, you remember Becky. I should. I brought her into the world. On television, he appears in the unexpected episode The Emperor of Nothing, two episodes of The Whistler, A Trip to Aunt Sarah's, and A Stranger in the House, the science fiction theater episode Dead Reckoning. Here's a nice sexist line from him in that episode. Didn't you ever notice that only single women are smarter than men, Miss Raleigh? Oh. And in the Twilight Zone episode, The Silence, as one of the club members, who, appropriate to the title, has no lines. He played Professor Lucerne in two episodes of The Adventures of Superman. You mean that I might be able to just pass through a wall? Hmm. Have you ever tried it? And he retired from acting after appearing in the Perry Mason episode, The Case of the Capricious Corpse. Joan, my lawyer, Perry Mason, call him. Tell him to have a new will for my signature tonight. Now, I've kept his lines short because he only has one line in this episode. It happens later on, and he says... He'll live. Everett Glass is in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Your Witness, episode 31 of season four. And he died in 1966 at the age of 74. After Brother Charles leaves the room, Ray opens the door and looks in, and he sees Rocco lying in a bed, his face turned away, not moving, the covers pulled up to his chin. Now is his moment, and he pulls out his gun. But all of a sudden, the door closes on him. It's yanked closed, forcing him back. It's almost a supernatural moment, a really nice moment. But it's not the hand of God that pulls the door closed. It's the hand of Father Vincente, who has followed him out of Vespers. Would you commit murder here? Put the gun away, Mr. Clemens. Ray looks at the father, then he looks at the gun, until he finally puts it away, back in his jacket pocket. There's plenty more that's going to happen to Ray in the rest of this episode to affect this way of thinking. But to me, this is the critical moment. And I think Robert Stevens knows it too, because he has Ray take 20 seconds. I timed it from the moment that Father Vincente tells him to put the gun away until the moment that he does put the gun away. 20 seconds is an eternity in half-hour television, and you don't use that 20 seconds for something like this unless you really want it to stand out. Ray's goals haven't changed at this point, but this moment shows that there's a decency there. 
that there's a conscience there. And that conscience wins this struggle. So Ray agrees to honor the sanctuary, but that doesn't mean he doesn't intend to try to kill Rocco later. And he tells the father that he can't stay in the monastery because he doesn't trust himself. So in spite of the fact that the weather is still terrible, he decides to go back to the train station and take the 921 back to the city. Brother Jared is again given the unenviable task of driving him. And as they walk back to the machine, Jared, who now seems to know he's Ray Clemens and knows everything about him, has something important he wants to tell him. Mr. Clemens, I received a decoration for killing 11 enemy soldiers. If there is a weight on my conscience, it was not put there by my country or my church. Most of the things that you have lost, Mr. Clemens, your job, your girl, your self-respect, can be replaced or recovered. But neither you nor I, Mr. Clemens, can now or at any other time give back the breath of life. Remember that, Mr. Clemens. Remember it. Because you never can forget the face of a man you've killed. Of course, Jared doesn't mention the one thing he can't recover which is his father's life. Still, it's interesting to note that he dismisses his country and his church, law and religion, for their role in the weight that he bears. He seems to be saying that the conscience is innate, and the guilt that comes upon you when you see the face of a man you killed is a natural aspect of that conscience. We skip the ride in the machine this time, and instead crossfade back to the train station with the sound of Jared's machine driving off in the distance. Ray walks into the room. He has that spattering of snow on his shoulders again. He walks across to the stove and warms his hands. It doesn't seem to click with him that if a fire has been lit and the station agent isn't around, somebody else must be there. We get this odd, interesting shot of a hand holding a gun coming around a trunk sitting on the floor in the station. It can't be a very comfortable place to hide, but it is a pretty cool shot. Ray notices the movement and starts to react. If you're reaching for a gun, Clements, don't. I'll kill you before you get it out. Fun, sir. Sure. Did you think a crack over the head was going to stop me? I didn't worry about it. You're an amateur, Clements. I wasn't out five minutes. And Major, missed the train. But I caught the streamliner. First time it stopped here in four years. Okay, well, that explains that. Unser pokes his head out from behind the trunk. The poster on the wall behind him on this frigid winter night is for Sun Valley. And he turns out to be someone that we've seen before when he was on the other side of the law, playing the cop Al in episode 15, The Big Switch. It's Joe Downing. And he is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Bull in a China Shop, episode 26 of season three. Now, Unser isn't hiding in the train station because he wants to go see Rocco. No, he knows about the $13,000 because the letter, which Ray did not get when he stole the envelope, informed him that Rocco wanted to return the $13,000. So he's waiting for Ray to return because he wants that $13,000 for himself. I want it, Clements. No. I won't do any arguing. Toss it over. So Ray tries to make a break for it. 
Unser shoots him, and Ray falls down onto the floor. Well, I don't think the story's going to end there. But before we go any further, just a reminder that Ray has not become a saint just because he decided not to shoot Rocco in the monastery. He's perfectly willing to lie to Unser in a situation where I'm not even sure why he bothers to lie. How's Dave? Would they let you see him? He hurt his back. I wasn't able to see him. So, no, they wouldn't let him see him, but he was able to see him. In any event, Unser steps out very carefully. Ray is not moving on the ground, as far as Unser can tell, but he actually is still alive, and he carefully pulls his gun out so that when Unser appears, Ray shoots him. Unser's shot may not have killed Ray, but Ray's shot has killed Unser. Unser falls half onto a trunk, his left side leaning up against the trunk, his head dangling down. His hat half falls off, propped there between his head and the trunk. It's really a very powerful image. Ray slowly gets up and intently looks at Unser's face. That's really all we needed for that moment. Just Ray looking with wonder and a little bit of horror into the dead face of the man he's just killed. Instead, we see Ray push Unser over and he pries open one of Unser's eyes. And that's still not all we get. We also get this voiceover. You never forget the face of the man you kill. And then we get this voiceover. Either you nor I can now or at any other time give back the breath of life. And I can't watch that without thinking about what Donald Spoto said about Hitchcock in the Poisoned Romance feature on the notorious Criterion Collection that I played in our episode on And So Died Rhea Bashinska. Overstatement infuriated him. He presumed that adults were watching the picture. The scene fades out and then fades in on two policemen knocking on the door at the monastery. One of them is played by Claude Aikens, who was probably the most recognizable actor in this episode to today's audience. We'll let him have a few lines before we stop and talk about him. The other policeman, well, we'll wait until he actually has a line before we talk about him. Sorry to disturb you, Father. Tell me, what is it? What's happened? There's been a shooting down at the railroad station. A man named Floyd Unser was killed. Well, according to the station agent, this man was killed by a young man who visited the monastery earlier this evening. Now, who was this young man? He was Ray Clement. Why did he come here? I can divulge nothing except that his visit here had absolutely nothing to do with Mr. Unser. But, Father, Tell he was... me, what happened to Clements? Well, he got away, but we think he stopped a bullet. We figure this is the only place he can come to. Claude Aubrey Aikens was either born in 1918 or 1926. He's listed as being born in 1918 in a lot of film reference works. But his son says his father was born in 1926. And he is listed as Aubrey Aikens in the 1940 census, age 13. He was born in Nelson, Georgia, but the family moved when he was six months old to Bedford, Indiana, where his father became a police officer. He served with the U.S. Army Signal Corps in World War II in Burma and the Philippines, which seems to imply that he was born in 1918. After the war, he went to Northwestern University, where he majored in theater, graduating in 1949, which seems to imply that he was born in 1926. His first role was in 1953 
in From Here to Eternity. Here is what he said about it. My first scene on film was where I walk into the office and report Private Pruitt absent to Sergeant Warden, played by Burt Lancaster, and I was scared to death. Burt was one of the big stars of that era, but still very nice. Fred Zinneman, the director, was extremely patient and understanding, and somehow I got through it. My panic has always been the time right up to the end of my first scene. Once that first shot is in the can, I'm home free. Pruitt's still absent. Makes three days now. How long are you going to carry him present, Top? I just mentioned it. Well, don't mention it. He went from playing a soldier in From Here to Eternity to a sailor in the Kane Mutiny. Keith, have you any explanation for the appearance of this sailor? Horrible, you heard my order on shirt tails. Sir, I got a heat rest. Well, tuck your shirt in now. Sir, the captain won't let me. In between those two roles, he played a henchman in Bitter Creek and a police officer in the Dragnet TV series and in the film Witness to Murder. He will continue to play cops and criminals throughout his career. Or, as Claude put it, a guy who looks like Robert Redford will most often be cast as a hero. A guy like me or Ernie Borgnine plays a lot of heavies. If you're big, they think you're tough. And if you're tough, they think you're dumb. Here are some of Claude's heavies in The Adventures of Superman. Uranium from the ocean. Hey, that's better than making gold out of lead, huh? Barney, this is it. With our smuggling connections all over the world, that formula could make us a king's ransom. There's only one catch. First, we got to get the formula. We'll get it. In Riverboat. Brother's dead. Oh, no. Well, now, there's no reason being too upset about it. Brother deserved killing. Besides, he was a rich man. A mighty rich man, lover. There's no reason why we can't enjoy it together. In The Defiant Ones... Give us a break, buddy, huh? I ain't your buddy. You got your buddy. Which one of you did it? Did you do it? Why did you do it? How is he, Sam? He ain't come to yet. He ought to be all right. Yeah, he ought to be. Did he do it? You protecting your buddy? Well, it don't matter. You're both gonna hang. You can't do anything to us. We escaped cars. So? So they're gonna be looking for us. What are you gonna do when they find us? You're gonna be crow meat when they find you. That's what's gonna happen. In Rio Bravo. What do you want? Why don't you sit in here and place the stumpage? I'd rather listen to a drunk than him. How you holding up, Borrachon? Got the shakes yet? That beer ain't gonna do you no good. You're gonna have to get something stronger than that. If you're still broke, I think I got another dollar. Hey, Chance, you gonna let him do that to me? I'll do better than that. I'll let him have the key to your cell anytime he wants it. In The Man from Uncle. Rossignoris, what shall I do with you? You realize, of course, that there is nothing to prevent me from standing you up against the wall and having you shot as enemy agents. In Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Gun. 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 Power. We shall get them, and we shall keep them. With gun, 
We will smite the humans. All humans. And then we will smite Caesar. And in Erie, Indiana. Hey, uh, Grungy. What do you want to rob a bank for anyway? I mean, what's a dead guy like you going to do with the money? That gummit, I ain't in it for the money. That is such a common misconception about bank robbers. It's the principle of the thing. And here are a few of his cops in Perry Mason. Did you find him? Did you find my husband? Not yet, ma'am. My men have searched most of Glidden Cove, but so far there's no trace. In The Night Stalker. This girl lost a lot of blood, Sheriff. But she didn't lose it here. Anything? We found a purse. There's signs of a struggle up here. But nothing in between. Only our footprints. What'd he do, throw her? And in Murder, she wrote, Tomorrow I am going to find that man and I'm going to prove to you that I'm not Dottie. You are Dottie. Sometimes you spin around more in a circle than a Roman candle on the 4th of July, like now. But if you feel that strong, the least I can do is help you look. Along the way, he was in two episodes of The Twilight Zone in which he didn't play cops, but he did play the good guys. The monsters are due on Maple Street. Who talks to you on that uh, radio set, and who do you talk to? Well, I'm surprised at you, Charlie. How come you're so dense all of a sudden? Who do I talk to? Well, I talk to monsters from outer space. I talk to three-headed green men who fly over here in what look like meteors. And the little people. They picked themselves a corker of a deity. It's too bad they don't know who they're breaking their backs for. Meaning what? Meaning they're worshiping a heartless slob whose insides are made out of the same stuff as that statue. Yeah, it's a good likeness, Craig. And an hour from now, they can sell it for junk. Now, let's get back to the ship. We're taking off. When he finally gets his own television series in 1974, he plays a good guy, Trucker, in Moving On. Fill it, lube it, check the tires, brakes, air compressor valve. Fifth wheel? The works. Right. But he's back to being both a cop and a heavy, as well as the nemesis of the trucker, as Sheriff Elroy P. Lobo in B.J. and the Bear. What destruction are you talking about? Look, that jail is going to be finished good as new. I'll be out of this temporary trailer as a headquarters. And it's been six and a half weeks at a cost to the taxpayers of this county of $184,000. $649.72. And the uh, 72 cents was a requisition for a new coffee mug for the sheriff. I'd have considered that a personal expenditure. Not when you figure that it was broke on account of that no account truck. <laughs> yes, you're right. I will. Uh... Reimburse the county. Surprisingly, that character proved popular enough to gain his own spin-off series, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, later just known as Lobo. Does this have anything at all to do with a UFO? You know something about this UFO sighting last night? Oh, well, it wasn't really a UFO. It was 
probably a meteor, but it came close enough to the car that I ran off the road. You think the guys that wrote that episode of Lobo had the monsters are due on Maple Street in mind? Remember the line from that? I talked to three-headed green men who fly over here in what look like meteors. It's just got to be. Now, Claude Aikens was a lifelong golfer, and in his honor, his hometown of Bedford, Indiana, hosts the Claude Aikens Memorial Golf Classic every year. Proceeds from that go to the Aikens Scholarship and the Bedford Recreation Foundation Scholarship, which are given every year to a senior from Bedford North Lawrence High School. Claude is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, in which he plays a cop, and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, in which he plays a sheriff. His next is Reward to Finder, episode six of season three. And he died in 1994, age 75 or 67. All right. So the police are at the monastery to search for Ray, and Father Vincente gives them permission to look. Ray is not there yet. While the police are looking, Ray shows up and knocks at the door. He doesn't seem to have any more snow on his coat after walking a mile up to the monastery than he did in the five seconds that he went from the train to the station. But be that as it may, Brother Jared answers the door just as Ray collapses. He's not able to walk, so Jared, who seems to do everything at the monastery, hefts him over his shoulder and takes him inside. Soon after, the police have finished their search and are satisfied that Ray is not there. Well, we checked pretty thoroughly, Father, but there might be a hiding place we couldn't find. So I'd like to have your word for it that that guy isn't stashed somewhere. You're free to search anywhere. There are no hiding places. What's in there? Our infirmary. Yeah, I checked it. Well, I just wouldn't want to think that he was being moved from room to room ahead of us. Father? But that room was empty. Whoa, wait a minute, who spoke just then? Well, that is the other police officer. Now, there's one other actor listed for this episode on IMDb, and that is Steve Mitchell. The problem is, Steve Mitchell is listed as Joey, and there's no Joey in the episode. So is Steve Mitchell the second police officer? I had an email exchange with Patrick Wickstrom, co-author of The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, and he said that Steve Mitchell couldn't be anybody else. And I agreed. But Steve Mitchell is also listed as Brown in the film The Killing. And Patrick sent me a clip in which Brown appears. The problem there is that Brown is not played by Steve Mitchell. He's played by Herb Ellis. So where to go to track down Steve Mitchell? I checked his credits on IMDb. His very first credit is for an episode of The Adventures of Ellery Queen in 1951. An episode entitled, interestingly enough, The Twilight Zone in which he plays a thug. He's listed as a golf official in Pat and Mike, but that's too nebulous a designation in order for me to find him. And he's a slave in the Ten Commandments, the 1950s version. But again, good luck finding him in that. Eventually, I found him in an episode of Riverboat. All right, men, I need one more driver for that last wagon. Any volunteers? I can handle it for you, Captain. Name is Bigsby. Clint Bigsby. In an episode of The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. Gotta hand it to him, Doctor. He ain't skilled, but he sure is strong. <laughs> and in an episode of The Wild Wild West. What are you doing here? I get the feeling you don't really expect an answer, do you, friend? Over against that wall. Move! And I can confirm that Steve Mitchell is indeed the second police officer. 
Steve Mitchell is also in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, based on the Ray Bradbury story, The Foghorn, the science fiction theater episode, Bolt of Lightning, and the thriller episode, Late Date. This is his only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Steve Mitchell died in 2007 at the age of 80. So Ray has blown his cover by calling out, and now the police know that he's there. Is that Clements? I brought him in a short time ago, Father. I'm sorry, Father. We'll have to take him in. Call an ambulance. You can't. Why not? Within these walls, a man has sanctuary. You mean he's safe from the law as long as he stays here? So now Ray, who disregarded Rocco's sanctuary, benefits from it himself. When he is well enough, when we can do no more for him, we will no longer protect him. But until such time, I will ask you please to leave this room so as not to disturb him. But if you're going to talk to him... As long as you do not question him, you may listen from out there. He'll live. And that was the only line that Everett Glass has in the episode. What happened, Mr. Clements? Hunter followed me. He was waiting for me at the station. I killed him. I killed a man. Why? Why did you do it? He wanted my money. But it was mine. I didn't want to kill him. He shot me. He fired first? He hit me. I had to do something. This is all old information to us, so we're being told it twice. But I think it's excusable in this case, because what we mainly are seeing is Father Vincente's reaction and the policeman's reactions. And what is Claude Aiken's reaction to this? It was self-defense. Well, could have been, I guess, as long as the other guy fired first. Was Clemens carrying a lot of money? $13,000. Did it belong to him? Yes. It was left in trust for him here. As far as I'm concerned, I forgot what was coming to him. Well, that's just a personal opinion, of course. I should hope it is. So one cop thinks that Unser got what's coming to him, and therefore Ray is completely off the hook, right? Well, probably not. But at least that dispenses with the law in this episode, leading us to the twist. You were right, Father. You and Brother Jared. I changed my mind. I won't touch Rocco. He should rest now, Father Father, do you understand? I'm all right now. I don't hate Rocco. Tell him that, Father. Tell him... Tell him he's got nothing to worry about now. All his worries are in the hands of the Lord now. The way you felt, it would have done no good to have told you before. But Mr. Rocco died just before you arrived. It's a great twist. But now that we know that Rocco has been dead since before Ray showed up, we have to ask ourselves, why is Brother Charles bringing a tray into the room? Why isn't Brother Charles at Vespers? Why is Rocco's body so nicely tucked into the bed like he's asleep? And why doesn't Brother Jared tell Ray that Rocco is dead when he first drives him up from the train station? Interestingly, these are problems only of the teleplay, not of the short story. The short story is very hard to come by. 
because as far as I can tell, it appeared only once in the January 1947 issue of Crack Detective Stories. I was never going to be able to track that down. But Jack Seabrook has scanned the story and put it on his blog at barebonesez.blogspot.com. So a great big special thanks to Jack for that. The story begins with one of those editorial blurbs that usually appeared at the start of stories in magazines like Crack Detective. And it says, Clemens was no criminal, even though he had paid the price of prison for a mistake. But now there was murder in his heart. In the story, Ray Clemens is James Clemens, Brother Jared is Brother Gerard, and Unser is Answer, A-N-S-E-R. His death certainly provides the answer to James's moral dilemma. The story begins with James wading out on the platform in the snow. There's an almost mystic element to it all. When Brother Jared shows up and calls out Mr. Answer, the voice came in out of the storm disembodied. The man on the platform had not heard the sound of a car. He squinted against the flailing snow and then pulled up sharply. A huge cowled figure had materialized from the darkness, dim and shapeless, in a dark robe that reached to his ankles. With that peaked hood casting a shadow where the face would be, the figure was more of a presence than a man. I'm here from the monastery, he said. We'll have to hurry. So the first shadow we see in the story is one that covers Brother Gerard's face, making him seem more like a presence, making him seem more metaphysical than physical. And Brother Gerard isn't the only thing in the story that has a physical root but takes on a metaphysical cast. As they are driving to the monastery, James thinks the gun was no longer heavy or awkward. It was a physical extension of his hate. And when James attends Vespers, which he does before he meets Father Vincente, he feels a hypnotic, unreal sense of having lost all contact with everything that was familiar and substantial. The great grotesque shadows of those cowled figures moving slowly toward the altar was like something medieval, wholly unknown, and yet somehow elusively familiar, like the nostalgia for things long forgotten. He had a sensation that time was without meaning here, neither past nor future, thus dwarfing everything physical into insignificance. Even the hate, burning like raw acid in the chest, seemed somehow remote and out of the way. Now, if you were wondering why Rocco might trust his partner with $13,000, $8,500 in the story, the story provides an answer. As Father Vincente says, Mr. Rocco had a change of heart since he came to us. I don't say he's become a Christian, but he did feel that he'd done you a great wrong. His reason for asking me to write Mr. Answer was to find you. I felt he didn't trust his friend enough to let him return the money. Of course, if Rocco didn't trust Answer, maybe he shouldn't have mentioned the money in his letter to him. Maybe he just should have said something like, find Clemens and tell him where I am. Here, Clemens never has any intention of harming Rocco in a monastery. He tells Father Vincente, I don't intend to cause trouble here. Just tell Rocco that someday, somewhere, I'll meet him again. He can't claim the protection of these walls forever. I'm stymied this time, but I can wait. With this money, I can wait even longer. James returns to the station and encounters Mr. Answer. Unlike Ray, in the episode, James has not seen Rocco. So he is telling the truth when he says to Answer, I didn't see him. They have their gun battle. And Robert C. Dennis writes, When Clemens crept over beside him, his breathing had stopped. 
With a hand that shook so hard that the first match went out, Clemens lighted the piece of paper and in its brief flare looked down at Answer's face. He had never before seen a man who had died violently. It was not pretty to see. I did that, he said aloud. I killed a man. The paper burned his fingers and he dropped it. In that cold, dark room, he began to shake convulsively, uncontrollably. Not until this moment had he considered what his feelings would be when he killed Rocco. He had thought only of the deed itself, and the hatred burning in his soul had made contemplation of murder a simple and natural thought. But now, with Answer's blood making his fingers sticky, revulsion came in a wave of nausea. He had taken a man's life. His own losses, job, friends, self-respect, Janet. Note that in the story, his father does not die. All those things could be recovered or replaced. Rocco had given back the money he had stolen. But he, James Clemens, could never, now or at any time, give back to answer the breath of life. And this had been self-defense, justifiable in the eyes of the law. What if he had killed Dave Rocco in cold blood? So he goes back to the monastery with a bullet in him. When he's taken in, Brother Charles, the doctor, tells him, five minutes more and you would have bled to death. There are no policemen showing up. It's just a moment at the end between James and Father Vincente. There was no hatred in Clemens now, only a strange peace. Everything was all right. Tell Rocco, Father, he has nothing to worry about now. That's in the hands of the Lord, Mr. Clemens, Father Vincente said quietly. Mr. Rocco died the day before yesterday. Jack Seabrook says of the story, Forgiveness, repentance, vengeance, and confession are among the religious themes that Dennis handles deftly. Most interesting is Father Vincente's decision not to tell Clemens that Rocco is dead until he knows that the young man has forgiven the one who victimized him. The priest seems content to let events play out, urging Clemens to rethink his vow of vengeance and willing to wait and see if he reaches a place of forgiveness before providing the piece of information that, had it been shared earlier, might have prevented the young man's heart from having the opportunity to heal. Now the story, as you can probably tell, is much more compact and Robert C. Dennis had to expand it a bit. So he adds various things, none of which I think do the story any service. He adds the fact that Ray's father has died as a result of this. He adds that Ray was an altar boy. He adds the scene where Ray actually finds Rocco in the bed and pulls out his gun, as if he is intending to kill him in the monastery. He adds the story that Brother Jared tells about killing a man in war, and of course, he adds all of the stuff with the police at the end, none of which is necessary. The story packs a punch because it lacks all those things. So I prefer the story to the episode, but I like the episode too. I love all of the shadows, but I think that the place of shadows in the title is not the monastery, not the train station, but Ray Clemens' soul. And by the end of the episode, the shadows are dispelled. So in our final scene, we have a shot of Ray in his bed lit in such a way so that all the shadows disappear from his face. The only shadows are on the pillow underneath him. All the shadows are behind him. So is this a situation that requires religion or secular justice? Well, you'll forgive me if it sounds like a cop-out, but I believe in this case it's both. Father Vincente, as Jack Seabrook says, seems content to let things play out, convinced that if Ray does not know that Rocco is dead, he will still come to forgiveness. That is faith.
But Ray's coming to forgiveness does not come because Brother Jared has told him the story of killing men in war, does not come because he was an altar boy. It comes in looking at the face of Unser in death. And that is a more secular revulsion. So each separately comes to the same conclusion, just as they do in the countenancing of Ray's crime. For Father Vincente, following the tenets of his religion, provides sanctuary for Ray during his time of recovery, both physical and spiritual, while the law, in the person of Claude Aiken's police officer, determines that Ray acted in self-defense and Unser got what he deserved. In the Oresteia, after Orestes is set free, Athena turns the Furies into the Eumenides, which means the graceful ones or the kindly ones, perhaps a representation of the transition from vengeance to forgiveness. So here, Ray, pursued by his furies, looks them dead in the eye, or looks them in a dead eye, and recoiling in horror, converts them to the humanities. The shadows are gone, the thirst for blood is gone, and the grace and kindliness remain. Now, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, the outro on my DVD is the alternate narrative. There are a number of similarities between the alternate narrative and the original outro. So I'm going to try to piece it together kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. A little bit of Hitch talking, a little bit of me talking to present what the original outro was. Then we'll go to commercial break. Then we'll come back and finish the original outro. And then we'll wrap up with the alternate narration. The murder on tonight's television program was, as usual, completely unrehearsed. In fact, we hadn't planned on having a killing at all. Our story was intended to be about a man found guilty of parking in front of a fire hydrant. But the actors seemed to have gotten out of hand. Now, at this point, according to the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion, there should be some gunshots. And in the alternate narration, Hitch looks off stage as if he's hearing something, but there's nothing on my DVD, which makes Alfred look a little bit foolish. So let's add a couple of gunshots from the episode itself, and we'll add them again in the alternate narration. Let's go back to Hitch's last line. But the actors seem to have gotten out of hand. There they go again. A wild, unruly lot, those actors. For more predictable entertainment, I recommend the following, after which I'll be back to see if you have observed its full significance. Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1, including the short feature Alfred Hitchcock Presents A Look Back, House of Usher, Perry Mason Season 6, Columbo Seasons 6 and 7, The Adventures of Superman Seasons 3 and 4, The Dead, The Twilight Zone Seasons 1 and 3, Lost in Space Season 2, Fargo, Escanaba in the Moonlight, Star Trek Voyager Season 3, The Thing from Another World, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, From Here to Eternity, The Cane Mutiny, Murder, She Wrote Season 1, The Wild Wild West Season 3, Rio Bravo, and The Battle for the Planet of the Apes are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. Johnny Yuma, Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome, The Man in the Attic, the clip of Harv Presnell singing They Call the Wind Mariah, the clip from B.J. and the Bear, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, Moving On, 
and the clip from the Defiant Ones are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject heading. And finally, here's the first of an occasional series I'm calling Ingrid, It's Only a Movie. These are clips that I have come upon that attracted my attention for whatever reason, but which don't fit smoothly into anything I plan to discuss. This time, it's Charles Bennett from the Hitchcock feature on BBC's Omnibus series, airing in 1986 and available online. Charles Bennett wrote the play Blackmail, which Hitchcock adapted into his film. He then worked with Hitchcock on The Man Who Knew Too Much, the first one, The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, Sabotage, Young and Innocent, and Foreign Correspondent. Here he is talking about their working day together. In the morning, I used to get up and pick up Hitch in Crumble Road, where he lived, at 10 o'clock, exactly. And he would be sitting on the curb, waiting for me, with Joan Harrison, who was our secretary, sitting on the curb beside him. And uh, sometimes it was raining and late, but it didn't make any difference. And then we would go to the studio, where we would discuss the script and things like that, and what was going on and what I was doing with it and that kind of stuff. And then uh, at about one o'clock, everything would stop. And we'd go to lunch, always at the Mayfair Hotel, <laughs> right there, and, uh, and have a wonderful lunch, and then come back. And uh, at that point, Hitch would usually go to sleep in the office, and I would do a little work, and... Uh, possibly doze off too slightly, I don't know. But eventually, about five o'clock, we would go back to Hitchcock's flat in um, Cromwell Road, where we would start having nice cocktails for the evening and talk more and more and more about the script. And I think more work was done on the script in the evening over cocktails than any other time. Next time... Episode 23, Back for Christmas, starring John Williams and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. For those of you who fail to grasp the point of that message, it was prepared by my sponsor, who wishes you to buy his product. I don't think that's an unreasonable request to make. Next week, my beloved sponsor and I, and all our actors who are not on the critical list, will be back to bring you another story. Until then, good night. Wow. That was a bit of a snapper, wasn't it? The murder on tonight's program was, as usual, completely unrehearsed. In fact, we hadn't planned on having a killing at all. Our story was intended to be about a man found guilty of parking in front of a policeman. But the actors seemed to have gotten out of hand. There they go again. A wild, unruly lot, those actors. I hope we have some of them left when we return with our next play because uh, we'd be somewhat handicapped without actors. Until then, good night.